The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1881, the children's magazine Young Folks began running an adventure story called The Sea Cook, a story for boys, by a man named Captain George North. Captain George North was a pseudonym of Scottish author Robert Louis Stevenson, and The Sea Cook, a story for boys, turned into what we now know as the novel Treasure Island. It gave us plenty of details that came to be part of pirate lore, X marks the spot, and parrots on the shoulder. But it also locked us into some of that iconography. Pirates and piracy can be more than just a young 19th century English boy signing up for an adventure to deserted tropical islands. Pirates have existed in all oceans, in all eras, and piracy is a state of mind. It was to be a story for boys— Stevenson said of his work, no need of psychology or fine writing. Women were excluded. All well and good for Stevenson, but what about the rest of us? What about using adventure stories, and pirate novels in particular, to learn about a different era, and different people, and a different part of the world? Why not take the magical spirit that makes pirate novels so exciting and apply them to something fresh and new? Enter today's guest, C.B. Lee, Treasure Island Remixed, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. We've jumped into November now. I'm glad you survived Halloween this year. We are all hanging on, aren't we? Our ship has been through some storms. And here we are on deck, careening from side to side as the rain soaks our bodies, but not, perhaps, our spirits. Speaking of spirits, maybe we could get a little rum here, some grog. But there I go, falling right back into the familiar cliches, rum and grog, and singing pirate songs, and walking the plank, and all of that. And what's exciting about today's guest, C.B. Lee, is that we're not in that world, necessarily. We get to journey to a different world, the world of the South China Sea, where her book, A Clash of Steel, a Treasure Island remix, takes the spirit of a pirate novel. What is, well, let's talk about that. What is piracy? Living outside the law, freedom, Developing a culture in microcosm, the floating culture of those wooden walls. And suddenly, I don't know if there will be parrots on shoulders and one-legged captains and rum and grog. I know there's treasure, probably. That's what pirates do. After all, they're thieves. There'll be maps of some kind. There must be navigation. Anyone on a ship would need that. And I know there will be people. In this case, the golden age of piracy in the South China Sea, which has an amazing historical figure at its heart, the woman known as the Head of the Dragon, Jing Shi, an incredible woman who was born in humble origins, as they say, possibly in a brothel, 1775. This was, she married a pirate when she was 26, and then she flourished. Her husband died, she took over, his uh, confederation of pirate ships, and she ran the fleet like a boss. 
What's it like to be a girl living in an age when Ching Shi has just basically conquered the pirate world? And then to be given a map, to be called to adventure, and to see if you have the courage and the wherewithal to find your destiny. It's a wonderful setting for a book, for a young adult book, and C.B. Lee is the right person to tackle it. She's been a successful novelist for a while now, a Lambda Literary Award-nominated writer of young adult and middle-grade fiction. She wrote the popular Sidekick Squad series. She wrote Ben 10 graphic novels and Out Now, Queer We Go Again, among many other works. This is the first of our remixed series. Soon we'll be talking to a woman who remixed Little Women. I love this project. I love the chance it gives us to rethink our classics, to pull from them what we want, and to breathe some new life into them, to put some new faces on board those ships, and to sail with them into fresh new seas. We'll have a listener email and C.B. Lee after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Our email today comes from Portugal, and I have to tell you, when I get emails from Portugal, my heart sinks a little bit because I know... I know, I know, I know. I know my failings when it comes to Portugal. It's the same thing that happens when I hear from Australia. I know what's coming. They will say, Jack, Jack, we've been with you, but Jack, it is time. Shirley Hazard, Patrick White, throw us a little bone, Jack. It is long past time, and I will say, I know, I know, I know, I know. I have no response. There are spots on the history of literature map. There are a lot that I've only just barely shaded in, and there are others that are completely blank, and Australia is one of them. And I have dear listeners in Australia who have written me wonderful emails. I owe you all an episode. I know that. Let me tell you some good news. The research has begun. And Portugal, I think it's like I, oh, I feel like I've committed a crime long ago, and I've been living under some assumed identity identity. 
and my punishment, my my gift is my freedom, but my punishment is that every time the door knocks, my heart jumps or sinks or both, I guess. It jumps and then it sinks and I have to think, oh no, have they caught me? Have I been caught at last? Surely this is the one. So here we go. Email from Portugal. Joao says, what a treasure you have created. That's a nice way to begin. Your podcast has accompanied me already for a few years. I'm an avid reader and a work-in-progress writer from Portugal who found comfort and joy in the amazing work you've put into your podcast. Thank you very much. Your love and dedication for literature has helped me review some books I've read long ago, or it has inspired me to discover new authors. I also appreciate your very well-curated choice of books and authors, but at the same time, your openness regarding discovering new literary voices. Okay. Okay, well, maybe this is good. Maybe I will die another day. Or wait. The email continues. He says, There's a writer I'd love to see covered in your podcast, Fernando Pessoa. And there it is. The boom has lowered. What a huge miss so far that we don't have a Pessoa episode. I know. I know. Can't get to everyone all at once. I haven't done Walt Whitman yet. There's only one Toni Morrison episode that barely scratched the surface. I promised a part two of Flannery O'Connor four or five years ago. (laughs) I haven't done that yet. I get it. There are some big gaps in the archive. Some of the people, some of them are intentional. Some of them I've saved on purpose. The idea is to leave a few whales in the ocean so I don't over-harvest. We don't want year nine of the history of literature to, to not have anyone good to cover. But even so, Pessoa, my goodness. Fernando Pessoa, we should have done him in the first 50 episodes, and here we are headed toward 400. He's still on the to-do list. Back to the email. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Some of his books are available in the U.S. He was a Portuguese poet who also wrote in English and French, and most of what he wrote was only found a few years after he died. He was incredibly prolific, and still nowadays, new works of his are being found. Besides being a great poet, what distinguishes him from most poets is his pseudonym. He wrote under several pen names. For each pen name, he developed a personality and wrote their biographies as if he was creating a character. Throughout his life, he published poems and other texts in the press using some of his heteronyms. Fernando Pessoa has become the most important modern writer of Portugal and even of the Portuguese language. He's also very well known in Europe. I don't know about the U.S. His most famous book is called The Book of Disquiet. Keep up the good work. Best, Joao. Yes. Yes, yes. Thank you for the email. Thank you for the kind words and for the gentle nudge. Yes, I have heard of Pessoa. I own the Book of Disquiet, a great book. He is fairly well known in the U.S., I would say. Not as well known as Proust or Kafka or Borges, but known among the cognoscenti, maybe like a a Robert Musile or an Italo Zvevo, passed around, handed off, urged. That's a great word for an author, an author's reputation. When you urge someone to read something else, you've got to take a look at this. Got to. I urge you. The most urged books of all time. That would be a good episode, maybe. Except it might be a bit specific to circumstances and eras. Maybe it's a little 
subjective. What do you think, listeners? If you have a candidate for a book that seems urged to you, maybe rightfully so, maybe annoyingly so, which books have you urged? Which books have been urged on you? If you have an idea, send it to Mike on Twitter at Literature SC. That's for the Literature Supporters Club. He'll be glad to hear it, I'm sure. What do you do with the urging? You buy the book for the person when you urge it on them? What do you do if someone urges a book on you? Okay, yes, Joao, thank you very much for the email. I'm kidding, of course, about my heart sinking when I hear from Australia or Portugal. My heart actually soars. I'm very glad to hear from you, and I will try to get to a Pessoa episode soon. He's a fascinating creature, to be sure. Okay, one more break, and then let's bring out the feast. C.B. Lee joins us after this. Okay, joining me now is powerhouse author C.B. Lee, who has written a number of prize-winning books for young adult and middle-grade readers. Her works include the Sidekick Squad series, Ben 10 graphic novels, Out Now, Queer We Go Again, and several others. She joins us today to talk about her new book, A Clash of Steel, which is part of a series called Remixed Classics, wherein authors from marginalized backgrounds reinterpret classic novels through a unique cultural lens. C.B. Lee, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to hear all about A Clash of Steel and your work remixing Treasure Island, but let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? Sure. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, Mm. and my parents were immigrants from Vietnam and China and definitely grew up reading a ton as a young child. Mm. I had to get glasses in the first grade. <laughs> I feel like like my mom told me it was because I was reading in the dark, but I heard that's not a thing. Oh, you know, maybe I just have poor right. eyesight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know it's it's sort of this stereotype that it's associated with intelligence. And I wonder if they're, they're, that's probably been disproven, but I wonder if wearing glasses that young, I also wore glasses that young. And I, I wonder if it pushes you toward that direction socially because of the way other kids might treat you. Do you ever feel like that? Was that part of it when you got glasses? Did you feel like the other kids suddenly saw you more as a bookworm or someone who would be at home in the library? I feel like there is there's definitely I don't know like in the like 90s there is definitely that like stereotype like oh like you know the kid with glasses they're they're usually pretty nerdy and it's I I was yeah but I did love to read and I I I think it was more to do that like I would continue to read after dark or like I would go to the library every week and get like a whole new stack of books Mm. and just like devour all of them and was that from the school library or the public library? Public or library, where were you? yeah. I spent a lot of yeah. time there, and like, like pretty much as soon as I like got a library card, um, you know, my mom would park me in the kids section, and I would make a pile. And like, while she was like looking up stuff or doing stuff, she would like find me and be like, "Which ones do you want to take home?" And then, um, you, I would bring home a whole stack of books, read them all, and then bring them back the next week and get a whole new stack. And I would like make my way through the kids section. And then like, you know, as I grew up, I like explored more of the library and, you know, read a lot of, you know, everything I could get my hands on pretty much. Yeah. And your mom, uh, what was she doing at the library? Was she a teacher or? My mom worked for um, the uh, city of Los Angeles. So she worked in like Parks and Rec and would she, you know, she'd have her own interests and hang out. Like the our local library, a lot of like senior citizens would come and like hang out there and read newspapers and stuff. Yeah. So 
you know, it was kind of like our quiet time. Yeah. So you were surrounded by people who viewed the library as a, a great public resource. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was it's, you know, the library has always been like a big like community center and it still is. I love like it's been fun, like doing interacting with libraries now as, as an author and doing library events and being a part of you know, programming and, and getting to see kids and like, you know, it's such a beautiful place, right? Because it's one of the like, last places you it's, you know, I maybe the only place you can go where you, you, you're free to exist and hang out without expectation of spending money. Yeah, right. It is such a great resource. I'm so glad you were able to find it. And when you were there, did you encounter any classic novels? I know today we're going to be talking about Treasure Island, but I'm wondering about, you know, did you find any in comic book form? Or I, I found the great illustrated classics when I was little. So I had Moby Dick and Sherlock Holmes and all that those kinds of books. Did you encounter anything like that? Or was that something that came later? I had a few great illustrated classics, actually. I think on my shelf, like the ones that I ended up owning, like as a child that were like gifted to me, I would read over and over again because they were on my books. Yeah. Right? So like I wouldn't need to go to the library because I had them. Yeah. So the ones I remember, like I had like Black Beauty and I had um, yeah. Heidi <laughs> and I had, oh gosh, I had a number of like, I don't remember who gave them to me, but I think it was like an aunt who was just like, oh, these are like fun stories. Yeah. But definitely A Little Princess. Most of the like classics that I read as a kid were... I read a lot of like fairy tales in mm. mythology and um, I think I didn't read Treasure Island until like middle school, but mm. it was, it was more, more of like, okay, like, you know, I read it and now I'm like, you know, I'm going to continue to read more. Like it didn't particularly strike me as, yeah, a, as a child. Right. How about other pirate books or movies? Definitely like when I was in high school, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies was coming mm. out. So those yeah. That was kind of an era <laughs> where I was like obsessed with those movies, particularly just like because it's such a fun, like swashbuckling, like fantasy. And it was like the first time anybody had done that kind of combination, like fantasy. And you have like Kira Knightley becoming like the pirate queen, you know, pirate king and like her as Elizabeth Swan. And like, you know, you have this like very grand adventure that's, really fun. And so that really, that really yeah. captivated me as, as a young teen. Right, right. I can remember when those came out and I remember it took about 10 minutes into the first one. And I thought this is going to be a huge thing because it was so fun mm -hmm. and it was so not what I expected. And, and Johnny Depp was giving it, you know, <laughs> the, the 100% Johnny Depp treatment. And it just felt like, oh, you know, pirates are going to be a thing again. Yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of like, you know, anime at the time that was like, you know, like One Piece and a lot of fun pieces of media that really, and, you know, as a kid, I think I was, I remember um, Sinbad and the Seven Seas. There's another one. Mm, right, right. Okay, so I want to get to your uh, revisiting of Treasure Island. Sure. But before we get there, I'm just wondering when you decided you wanted to be a writer, how old were you and, and what, what gave you the impulse? Were you writing stories at an early age or was that something that came in college or later? I think I was always like captivated by stories. So like, like as a young kid, I would like constantly come up with like fun stories or games for my younger cousins and like very elaborate stories of, of make-believe and, mm. and like fantastic adventures. Like, 
as a fifth grader, I had like my little group of friends and this is before I heard about like RPGs and stuff, but like <laughs> I turned our whole playground into a very elaborate fantasy setting and we have like inventory and maps and like, you know, an ongoing yeah. <laughs> campaign. And like, this is before right. I had any concept of like Dungeons Dragons and, and our, it was just like our own game and it was so much fun. Yeah. And, and then as an, as a middle schooler, I, I'm, I'm sure this is a common experience for many, many people who, who find themselves like, Oh, did you handwrite the beginning of a novel in a journal <laughs> like, <laughs> when you were in middle school? Cause I definitely did. I like hand wrote like, and I still have this journal too. It's like, go back and see in pencil, like chapter one, like, <laughs> so definitely it was, it was interesting that like, it was something that I had wanted to do, but didn't seriously consider as a career, you know, in high school, I was pulled towards like more towards journalism because I was like, okay, this is like a career that I could see myself right. doing. I got involved in like a school newspaper as an editor. And then in college, I was like really drawn to science and, and then went <laughs> to like college and grad school and did hard science. Yeah. And so after college, I like, you know, had a number of different jobs where I like worked in the park service for a little while and then worked in like various nonprofits as an educator. And it really came back to like, like storytelling and doing creative stuff where I was just like, you know what, I want to try my hand at this. And then my first novel was published in 2015. And, and it really, really was, it went from there, right? You know, before I wrote a novel, I was like, the concept of doing it was really daunting. Like, oh, it's like climbing an impossibly tall mountain. But once you've done it once, I was like, oh, I could, this is a, an accomplishable thing. And going from there, my first novel, Seven Tears at High Tide is, is a, you know, a fantasy romance. And then Not Your Sidekick came out in 2016, which is was the beginning of my superhero series. And so that really, at the time, I was just like, you know, I'm still doing this for fun. I don't know who's going to read it. I don't know, um, you know, who I'm really writing this book for like my 16 year old self, right? As I had yeah. a keen like awareness that, you know, uh, as a young reader, I loved all these books like science fiction, fantasy, every single like adventure story that I could get my hands on. Um, and yet at the time I was very conscious later as like a young adult. And like, as I got older that I, I very much internalized, like all these stories are like, not about like people like me, not people about who look like me, didn't have anybody that shared my identity. And like, as a young queer person learning about myself and learning to about like the idea that like, you don't exist is such a like, powerful and like pervasive idea that really shook me to the point of like if every every image you see of yourself and people like you are are about like trauma or about like deeply upsetting or like 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 I wanted the I wanted the grand adventures I wanted like you know dragons and destiny and and swords and, and yeah and like I wanted that kind of joy and to see myself reflected in that joy and to see myself get to be a hero and have to have, like, I, I didn't think that like happy endings were like for people like me. So um, I sought out to like, when I started writing, I like kind of wrote that intention into my books where I wanted to, to show that like, Hey, like, you know, I want kids of color. I want queer teens. I want queer teens of color to like be able to see themselves as the, like the main character and not just like someone who's like 
there to support someone else's story or someone who's just a sidekick or someone who's just, you know, the best friend or, or whatever. Like I want kids to be able to yeah. see like, Hey, you, you too, you can be a hero or you can go off and have an adventure. Yeah. Well, that even sounds like it could be a step up from when I grew up, which where I think it'd be more likely you'd be the villain, mm-hmm. you know, that could be a, a incredibly negative experience if it's like, Oh, the only person in here in this whole set of books who reminds me of myself yeah. is uh, portrayed as the bad guy yeah. or as you can tell when a character is being used to kind of creep people out mm-hmm. or make people feel uneasy or or play that kind of a role. in Right. A book. Right. And it's like a very dehumanizing experience that like you see a lot of like villains in like fairy tales and like villains. That, yeah. Like, um, you know, that are, are like queer coded. Right. That like, hey this person is an outcast and this person is treated this way in this society. And they have these particular mannerisms um, that are, are like real to real people in society. And it's hard when you see the only person that you connect with in that movie is the bad guy. And, and part of that has been interesting to see like as more writers from marginalized backgrounds are like, Hey, this is the power of, of, of seeing yourself. Like, I want to see myself like, like, yes, I want characters to have flaws. I want characters to have like every right. single possible, you know, arc. And there is, there's a trend a little while ago that like every queer character had to be like, I felt like there's a mounting pressure for every character to be perfect in a way right. because it was hard because it was like, they had the problem of being like the only person on that show, the only person in that movie. So that person had to be like the best person, right? Because somehow that right. one person had to represent like all people from that, right. like from, from that community. And so like when you have like a television show that only has like one person of color in it, or like give a television show where there's like an, an ensemble cast of like all men and then one woman, like then it becomes like this person has to be, be the exception. And then, then they're not free to be, a like nuanced person with like flaws and dreams and like idealized hopes. And so I think the answer is, is like having more, like the more stories we have, yeah. you can see the like spectrum of personality. You can like, no one person has to be the like one true representation for everybody because everyone's experience is different. And so there's like no community that's a monolith. Like there's no community right. that like, if you have more than one character from a background, you have the freedom to explore like the, the, the range of like storytelling that's possible. Right. And it's just, it's just more fulfilling and less boring. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing more boring than a character that you've seen a million times. And it's like, if, if a character has to be flat just because of who they are or how they look, uh, it just gets repetitive. And, and we as readers don't, there's nothing engaging about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So were you, did you feel like you were alone as you were coming to realize this or, or was there enough of uh, an, a, a general awareness? And I don't know if you had access to the internet at that point, or if it was still a little bit pre-internet, but I'm wondering, did you feel like you were making this discovery and that it was very isolating or were you able to connect with other people who were also basically saying, yeah, this is a problem and, and it's, it's got to change and it's going to change. And here's a book that does things the right way. And, you know, if you had a, a feeling that there was a community like that, that you could tap into. I think there's, it, it definitely like the, my interest in a lot of like interacting with other book readers really started in like the mid to late 2000s when I was a teenager and becoming a young adult, because that was kind of the confluence of like 
the internet as a social gathering ground, which was really interesting, right? Because you have before, like, you had to have like mailing lists and go to conventions or like, you know, you right, get, uh, like right. Star Trek, like fanzines and people had to like have addresses and, and like do like snail mail newsletters. And so fandom really evolved with the congruence of the internet evolving, right? You got forums, you got, yeah. you got web rings, you've got like people like publishing fan fiction and having discussions. And like, that was really the first time that I started engaging with literary works in a way that challenged the canon right and that was really mm. a, fa- a fascinating time because i was introduced to the possibility that like hey this character in this popular work like what if they were queer what if they were trans what if they were asexual and so people brought their interpretations of the character and wrote amazing beautiful stories that explored all these possibilities and that was kind of the first time that i read like queer fiction was in the form of fan fiction and it was in the form of because I didn't have like a lot of access as a kid. Right. And a lot of the like queer fiction that was traditionally published was like very much in the vein of like after school specials where it right, was, like, right. the queer character is here to be a point of empathy learning for the other characters. Like you had like books about like a biography of like Ryan Shepard and like you had like very deeply tragic stories about young queer people. And I, I think in the like early 2000s, like the fiction that was available was like, it was either very academic, which mm. I, I as a young child was, I was like, I want stories. I want like fun stories or like very deeply, like this is like trauma porn or like this is here to teach yeah. people how to be nice to other people. And I was like, I'm, I'm a human being. Like I don't exist to like teach people about empathy. And like, there are a lot of like stories that focus on coming out. And I think that's uh, that's a very specific experience that's interesting, but it's not the only experience, right? Like, I think it's still valid right. to have those stories. It's valid to continue to tell these stories, especially from communities and in backgrounds that haven't had the opportunity to tell those stories. But like, I, I didn't want like, like the one shelf in the bookstore, the one shelf in the library to be like all one genre. Like, I want to be able to walk into a bookstore and find queer books in every single possible genre. And um, right. the idea that like coming back to like fandom and particularly exploring characters were were like in works that I was already excited about right fantasy and science fiction and like mm. getting people to like seeing people were like all right now what if they were in space or like all right now what if they were like you know on this grand adventure and also were like having this grand queer romance yeah. and so seeing that also made me much more comfortable with like feelings I was having and be like, Oh, like there's other people who feel like attracted to more than one gender. Like I didn't really have a word for like my identity. Cause I was like, Oh, like I know I'm not gay, but I'm not straight. And like, I couldn't figure out but because those like growing up, those were the only two identities that I knew. And I was like, well, I'm also attracted to like men. So I'm not, I, I can't be like just gay, but I also have this attraction to like, other genders that I couldn't conceptualize. And then like the first like bisexual character who I like met on television was a deeply disturbing stereotype. And so like, you know, in the like late 2000s, like bisexuality was like a joke, right? It was a phase. It was like, people laughed at it. People were like, Oh no, you're not like a real, you're, you're just, you're either like, you know, a liar or you're like, um, you know, promiscuous or you're, you can't decide. And sooner or later you're going to pick, pick a side or whatever. And that was like a, a disturbing message to, to like a young adult who was trying to find their way in life. And 
you know, learning more about like my identity and seeing that like attraction can be, you know, more than one gender. It can be, you know, how you define it is like, and then the, that feeling of like, you are not alone was yeah. so powerful to me. Like, like seeing it in fiction, seeing it on the page, seeing it not be denied and seeing it in multiple forms too. Right. And getting to see people yeah. be like, Oh, like I'm queer this way. And there's no wrong way for me to be like, there isn't a wrong way to be queer. There's no like, hard binary or there's no litmus test of like yeah. you need to have x amount or, or you need to have done these things or you need to have felt these things yeah, let me just add one thing before we start talking about coming to treasure island it seems like you're the perfect person to write a remixed version of treasure island but i wanted to just say i never really put this together this way before but it makes so much sense as you're describing it that fan fiction would be the thing that was doing what you wanted it to do and that you were looking for because it, everything else has kind of a gatekeeper, mm -hmm. you know, and it would be a publisher who would be thinking, well, what should we do about this? And what will librarians or parents expect? And what will book buyers buy? And they're all kind of viewing it that way. And fan fiction is so pure in the sense of there were probably a lot of people who were saying, I'm going to write the story that I wanted to read or that I wish I could read and I'm going to, I don't see it. And so I'm going to set out and write it and then people find it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly beautiful. Like, I mean, when you think about like just in the uh, topic of like lesbian pulp fiction, right. Cause there was a plethora of books that came out in like the fifties and the sixties about like queer women, like falling in love with other women. And, and they're like, they weren't really romances, but they were kind mm. of, like Pulp Fiction in the sense that like you could find them at any store and, you know, they were cheaply available and printed on cheap paper. But like the publishing houses had very specific rules about Pulp, pulp Fiction, which were that the woman had to suffer or die or like mm. not be with the other woman at the end of the story. And so they always had to end tragically because that was like, they're like, okay, we can publish this, but right. only if this happens, because that way we can still have our like moral judgment Right. Right. And, and right. Like even then, like, but the, those like writers and those people still like, like the those books sold, right? Because people were so hungry to like see themselves and to have these stories. And those, those were the kind of stories people were limited in telling, right? Even if they wanted it to be happy, like, right. you know, the movie Carol is adapted from um, The Price of Salt, which is a mm. very famous old work of fiction. Yeah. And the formula was, it was imposing a, a kind of uh, narrative and, and it bled over into what the characters were allowed to do and, and what was allowed to have happened to them. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay, so Treasure Island. Somehow you got connected with the people doing the remixed classics and was Treasure Island, did they ask you what book you wanted to do for it? Or did they say we're looking for someone to do Treasure Island or how did that come about? Sure. So Emily Settle, who is an editor at 501 Friends at Macmillan, um, reached out to me and told me about her idea for the remix classics as a, as a series concept. And said, this is mm -hmm. what we're doing. This is my vision. I would, you know, I'm looking for authors to do their take on these classics and really coming from the idea about like, you know, challenging the idea of like what makes a classic a classic, what stories have not been told. And she was the one who presented the idea of like, you know, we're really interested in your work. Are you interested in this project? And if so, is there any particular classic that you feel strongly connected to that you would want to like 
remits. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so as a, you know, I think about like the ideas that she had and like, I had always been fascinated by, you know, when I was telling you about like just pirates in general, and particularly I, I like learned a lot about um, Zheng Yisao, who is a, a real historical figure, one of the most famous pirates in all the world. And she's, you know, she rose from being like a prostitute and like the wife of, you know, this pirate captain to really yeah. like commanding like not only her own fleet, right. but like unionizing and, and right, all these right. other fleets into a massive, like the Red Banner fleet really like was its own small country. Like she like brought like economic might, her like, you know, financial savvy, her charismatic leadership and like brought these crews, you know, all of these pirates together, thousands of ships and like all these people who really brought like the Qing dynasty, like the government the imperial government to their knees, along with the British, the Americans, the Portuguese, like, like no one could yeah. get in and out of that, <laughs> of the South China Sea without the pirates say so. And so they yeah. brought trade to a halt and were such a threat. And I don't know, she was just like a, such a fascinating figure to me that I was like, you know what, I want to do Treasure Island because I know I can, I can, I can, I want to work with her legends and I want to work with her legacy. So that's, where I I started and I was just like so right um Emily was like so excited about that so I, that's when I set off to like okay this is how I'm gonna do it I'm gonna have her treasure be the one being the like the lost treasure of legend in this novel yeah so I just want to make sure we didn't jump too far ahead of the listeners so I when I was thinking about a remixed classic mm-hmm. you know I thought there's a few different approaches you could take and one of them might be to just replace the main character with someone who's from a marginalized community. Or you could sort of tell the same story from a different point of view, kind of like Wide Sargasso Sea says, you know, we're not going to tell the the story from uh, Jane Eyre's point of view, but we're going to tell it from the Mad Woman in the Attic's point of view. And you could imagine, uh, you know, any number, you could tell, retell Huck Finn from Jim's point of view or, or something like that. Uh, but what you've done, is taken uh, some parts of Treasure Island, but you've basically put it in a different era, in a different locale. And you chose the South China Sea, where there was this real-life Chinese pirate queen uh, who was quite... I was reading about her in in preparation for this. She was quite amazing. Mm -hmm. And she had kind of a brief run, but but man, she really, she really, uh, uh, she really put her mark on this, uh, on piracy in the South China Sea. There were a bunch of, I guess, bands of pirates who were kind of diffuse, and she was, she married one of the pirate captains. But then, before too long, she had kind of formed it into this entire fleet where they were all working together oh, yeah. and like reporting she, to her. Like, and, yeah, streamlined. They're like, like she was like, all right, I'm gonna take a cut of everyone's loot. I'm gonna like hide it. I'm going to pay everyone. I'm going to establish all of these very specific rules and really like her ruthless, like, and like charismatic leadership. Right. And like yeah. brought like, you know, the yellow flag fleet, the, you know, black banner fleet, the like red flag fleet, all of these different disjointed pirate fleets and like brought like a sense of like military, like acumen to her negotiations and like all the battles that they fought were literally like the siege where like there was a point when the like the imperial Chinese government were like we need to stop them and there we can't like they tried for like years to eradicate this pirate threat and what ended up happening was that like she you know they that 
the battles came to a standstill and it was really like like she went out on her own terms where she was just like holding holding the city siege for three days and like they were trying to negotiate for her to like accept this pardon and like you know she was like all right you can pardon all my lieutenants you know get them cushy jobs in your navy i'm gonna keep these ships they're like they're like no please give up stop stop <laughs> no ships and she's like nope keeping three thousand ships I'm going to continue smuggling and doing whatever, but I'll stop. I'll leave you alone. And so like she retired literally from piracy, you know, and settled down, opened up a gambling house and literally died of old age. Like she was so badass. And I think like her story is not like on the tip of everyone's tongue. When you think pirates, you right, think, like right. Blackbeard, you think Sir Francis Drake. Yep. And it's a very westernized view about like, like the golden age of piracy is a very European ideal, right? When in fact there right. are people all over the world and there is like these, these figures who are like very larger than life. And so she, like I chose to, to do, to, cause I wanted to engage with her story, right? So taking the story and transplanting it into the South China Sea, that time period, that, that kind of edge of like, it's the, 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 you know, the sun is setting on the golden age of piracy, right? And it's about mm. like that cusp of, transition before like the opium wars and before like everything changes for yeah for you know for asia for like foreign trade foreign interests and it was kind of like these pirates doing their last stand about like what you know they're taking their like you know economic mobility into their own hands yeah well that's what excites me so much about your book and i can't wait to read it because i mean let, i'll give treasure island some credit it's such a classic pirate novel. It, it's it really Long John Silver of, like, and like, yeah. ideas because that that novel, like yep. Robert Louis Stevenson, really captured the imagination of 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 people in that. Like when when the novel came out, people had never like experienced anything like it. They were like, "Oh my gosh, the language, the like, I'm being transported to this yeah. you know distant island, and and it's like yep. the the like buccaneers and like you know." Yo ho ho and X marks rum. the like, spot. Yeah. It's very <laughs> one-legged pirates with parrots on their shoulder. That's that's all comes from Treasure Island. But what uh, excited me was thinking, oh well, I'm going to see something different, and there's going to be different atmospherics because I'll be in the South China Sea, so I can really see what what life as a pirate is like, but just taking away all of the trappings of the familiar piracy with X marks the spot. And, and like you said, yo ho ho and a bottle of rum and all of that. It's still, there's something about pirates. It's like the, there's a sense of adventure, the sense of freedom, there's a sense of being outside society. And yet it's kind of like the mafia where they have their own code within this outlawdom. Mm -hmm. And it, it really, I, I can't wait to see how you handle all of those things and, and what you've learned. Did you do research oh, yeah. on uh, pirates in the South China Sea? And oh, yeah. I guess it's the early 19th century here that we're talking about, but what kind of things could we expect? What was life as a pirate like for in that time in that place? So I did a ton of research, like, like on both like the academic side and also looking at like first town accounts and also drawing from like personal experience of, of like life in villages and in, in the um, like isolated rural areas in South China and, and Vietnam. So the, the research that I did primarily focused on like the rise and, and fall of piracy in the South China Sea. And I did, you know, I did a ton of excavation of history because a lot of, you know, history is written by people who are like, you know, I, I 
deem this important enough to remember. And so it's, mm. it's history is always biased in terms of like, like who's writing down the narrative, who's, who's documenting these facts. And so a lot of the perspective was really like, you know, it's from the perspective of like the British or the like Chinese government. And they're like, you know, this, mm. this, in the, these people existed, this is what happened. This, and so the, the stories about all these battles, they're all from the perspective of like, you know, like from what is available, right? Like I was reading like Portuguese history documents and British history documents. Like everyone was like, this one pirate <laughs> is a threat. We, we need to stop her. How are we going to stop her? And so like all these perspectives is like, well, we did this and this is how many ships we blew up and this is what happened. And this is how many people died in this battle. And so like reading in between the lines and seeing multiple sources, right? Like Chinese sources, American sources, British sources about like, Oh, I can piece together the timeline where she was kicking everyone's ass, but no one was. Right. Right. They would be like, well, actually we like, you know, that we have, we, we sunk this many ships. I'm like, yeah, but you didn't mention that. Like she like, like destroyed your entire fleet while you were, while you like destroyed her like three ships in that one battle. Yeah. Yeah. So she was outsmarting them, but you were getting that not from them sort of saying there wasn't a, a biography or something that was saying she was more clever. She was more smart. She was outwitting them. You were getting that from reading the the firsthand accounts of the people who were being outwitted, but maybe didn't want to highlight that fact. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, <laughs> there's, it was fun to like put together the puzzle pieces of her life. Right. Because mm-hmm, I'm looking mm-hmm. at all these different like accounts of like what happened in these battles. Right. And like, I like bought out of print books off of eBay. I like looked at the footnotes of footnotes to get like, I was on JSTOR reading article after article. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun. Like it reminded me of gra- my grad school days doing research and, and really like unpacking and, and analyzing yeah. all of these historical documents. I also worked with a translator who helped me like translate documents that were in Chinese and maps and, it was so much fun. I This was my first historical novel. So, you know, going into it, I was a little daunted. But once I started the research, it was really fascinating to me because I was finding so much information that was like not readily available. Or like if you just Google like Qingxir, you, you'll you find like the same three facts repeated over and over again. Because people are all citing <laughs> the same person, right? So that's like, you know, that's what's easy. That's what's there. And so right, right. the life as a pirate really, you know, a lot of the like day-to-day life you know, I drew from like ship logs and like manifests and like, okay, like what was on the ship? How many, you know, right. what cannons were they using? What weapons did they have? What did they eat? What, and like yeah, a lot yeah. of what I find fascinating from like, at least like in terms of what I wanted to engage with in a way that was different from Robert Louis Stevenson was that like, you know, the original Treasure Island presents, there's a very black and white view of piracy, right? And it's very clear like just from like the moral stance of like who lives, who dies in that story. Right. Cause it's mm. at the end, like the original treasure Island is about greed and it's about like, you know, like who survives, right. Jim, the doctor and like the, you know, quote unquote good people. And so I wanted in my novel for people to look more closely at the choices of, mm. of, of like, you know, all the characters, like whether they be a pirate or not, or like, you know, I, I wanted people to look and examine like, the society that that makes 
thieves and beggars and pirates, like, and to ask more questions about that society versus the people who have to make these choices to survive. Yeah. And there's, there's values there. And maybe this is my reading when I'm comparing it to, you know, sort of this floating mafia, but like things like friendship mm -hmm. and loyalty and, and it has this whole set of competing values of, uh, you know, that's maybe not legal versus not legal, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, what, what does it mean to do the right thing right. if you're there fighting on behalf of your best friend mm -hmm. or if you're, you know, seeking revenge for a, an injustice? Mm -hmm. So you also invented some characters. So I'm wondering, did you look to Stevenson to sort of see how his plot was working and and did you borrow anything of, about the mechanics of his book in order to figure out who your protagonist should be and how they could kind of get the story rolling? Very little. So hmm. when I thought about like like a remix, this is not a like there's no like exact parallel to any one character because I'm working mm -hmm. with such a like I wanted to write an original story with like beats of a classic that you might you would recognize. Like so there's a map. There's a call right. to adventure. There's a treasure. It's on an island. Um, right, right, and, right. And a motley crew. There's a, so, like, a youthful, uh, a youthful person who's finding her fortune. Right, and like you know, there there is an inn that burns down. So, <laughs> but mm. in terms of like like once like the story changes completely once you you take like the main character and she's now a young queer Chinese girl like what she wants from the world what she wants for herself is completely different and her motives and personality drive the story right like her desire to prove herself are what really like set set this whole adventure off and the original characters like xiang is her and like everybody on the crew everyone aside from like Zheng Sao and Zhang Bosai and like the actual pirates who are like referenced as real life figures and like the emperor who was emperor at the time and like everyone else is an invention for the story like so mm. this was a way for me to be like completely original and have have like unique dynamics that I wanted to explore and also have this like really fun adventure with like a queer romance attached to it. Yeah. Now I've talked to several writers of historical fiction for the podcast and I, I talk about this with all of them and I've gotten slightly different answers and that is their concern with balancing what life was like for people at the time with a modern day sensibility so how do you avoid putting a, a 21st century mentality into the heads of the main characters? Or is that not the focus in a, an adventure story or something for young adults? Is that not as, as big of a concern as it might be for some of my authors who have been writing more historical fiction that they were trying to make a little more accurate and less of a just a, a good adventure tale? I think it depends on the kind of story you want to tell, right? And yeah. it's hard as a writer because you can't divorce your values and how your own personal mentality and the, you know, I'm, uh, I'm living in the 21st century and I'm writing the story now for, yeah. and it will be read by people now in the present. Whereas like, you know, the, the story that I would have written if I were living in 1826 would probably be quite different. Right. Or maybe it would be yeah. like, maybe I would have had the same, like very similar desires of, or maybe the execution would have been different. That's all. But in terms of like, like I'm coming from a perspective, like I'm using the resources I have to tell the best story I can. 
And as far as like, you know, what is interesting, especially like writing about like queer identity in an age where those words might not exist, like the particular like words for like people didn't call themselves like gay or lesbian or like queer they they had like euphemisms or like they had like general senses or you know culturally they had their own words and their language for it but like the ideas that we have now about identity are not the same ones they had like hundreds of years ago but the fact that like we're we're human and it is a human experience and i think that's that's like that's going to be interesting for all writers right because it's historical fiction yeah you're you're still writing people and i think people will have always been people <laughs> Like whether it's like 21st century or 14th century or what have you. And then it's, it's just about the details, the execution. And so like, it'll be interesting to see like any, like something that fascinates me is like, if you took someone from, you know, like a a previous, another era and drop them into ours, there's a lot of things that would like confuse them. But a lot of like, I think their like wants and needs would be the same about like the human experience of wanting to, to find their your purpose or to have like fulfilling relationships with other people and friendships and and like the power of like community i think those are kind of universal things no matter what time period you're in right and like part of writing an adventure story was fun in a sense of like this is still like i you know i still think it's like a fun swashling buckling adventure but it's also like yeah i'm definitely <laughs> infusing my own values into this and I hope that yeah. people can like, you know, look at it as a jumping off point for like evaluating like their own questions about, you know, imperialism or colonialism. Well, it's a great it's a great thing about the pirate setting, because it's like you're saying, you know, uh, even if our language used to describe it or our our modern day understanding might not have existed, but attraction would have. And, you know, these feelings, these human feelings would have existed and I'll give you an example of one author I talked to and what she was concerned about. She had a, a character who was like a, a muckraking journalist, a woman in 1910, 1920 in that era. And her concern was she wanted to just say, you know, her impulse was to say, well, of course she should want to go to college. Of course she should want to be a professional. Of course she should feel like she should be treated just like the men and 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 be paid the same as them and and do whatever she wanted to do because that's how we would view a woman today. But she was worried that by making her too much like, uh, you know, the author just transplanted to that era, mm-hmm that it wouldn't really be fair to how hard it would have been for her to take that position at the time. And, and to, you know, she would have felt a lot more conflicted than a woman today might feel because she felt like she was letting down her parents or that she was, she was maybe not doing the right thing. And, but it seems like in the pirate setting, you know, you've got characters who are already kind of saying, we're going to live a little bit on the edge. We're going to be outside of rules. We're going to be outside. It seems like it would give you a lot of, of freedom to kind of say, if you want to have characters who are deciding they're going to go their own way or think their own thoughts, that they're in a, in a place and a headspace where they'd have some room to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really interesting. And I'm glad that you brought that up because it is something that like I did engage with, with like Xiong being like, okay, the expectations of me as a young woman from a merchant family is that I marry and I, you know, run a household. And so mm. like, she's struggling with that as part yeah. of like, and her, you know, already like her mother being a shrewd businesswoman, she's already been like, well, she's already a little bit more likely to challenge the idea that she just managed a household. 
and, mm. and produce errors. So she's just like, well, if you could succeed in business, so could I. And so already like building that into the setting, but also having there like a character who's a little bit more sheltered and then meeting this pirate crew who have yeah, experience. Right. And like, I, I, you know, hope readers have a lot of fun meeting like the different people on the crew from different walks of life. Like everybody on this crew was running from something or wasn't fitting into society in a specific way and getting to live their life and people engage with that. Right. They, they do were like, they realize that like, you know, being on the sea, we are, we are literally making our own laws here. So that setting definitely lent itself to like made it more possible for me to engage with these topics, but also from Sean's perspective about like, you know, Oh, she never thought about like, you know, if the emperor couldn't provide or like, you know, all these taxes, like what are they going towards? And like, you know, she learns about like thinking about like, Oh, like, you know, the like villages who are like, well, you know, it wasn't, you know, we would rather pay tribute to the pirates who actually did protect us from like bandits or whatnot, rather than like, you know, this imperial power that promises these services and never follows through. Yeah. Right. And if, if those people that she's encountering, if they need any, uh, jostling to get them out of their stereotypes they just had one with this pirate queen who was in charge of the whole fleet i mean it seems like once you live through something like that it would kind of upend your ideas of who's allowed to do what and and you know whether people need to fit into easily compartmentalized boxes Mm -hmm. uh you know they've just had this great example of somebody who didn't do it all was what was expected of her Mm -hmm. Mm. okay that is wonderful. I can't wait to read the book. It's I'm definitely going to read it. I'll put it in the hands of my kids. I'm sure they're going to love it, too. Now, as a thank you for appearing on the podcast, we are pleased to offer you a two-part honorarium. And part one is that we'd like to send you a book of your choice. Is there anything in particular you have on your wish list? Sure. I'm excited to read so many books. I think next on my list is um, Orpheus Girl by Bryn um, Rebel Henry. Um, ah, or the ones we were meant to find by Joan He. But yeah, I think there's, I feel like there's so many great books coming out. Yeah, there is. Well, Orpheus Girl, I think is a great book. We will send you a copy of that. Uh, And uh, part two of the honorarium is we'd like to donate to a charitable organization of your choice. So which good cause could use some of our help? I would love to donate to the Trevor Project. Mm, They're the best. I am so glad I'm so grateful to the Trevor Project. I I wish it had been around uh, when I was in high school. I know it would have helped a lot of people. It just it's such a it's such a great organization and and so important that we will be very glad to uh, donate in your name to that. Thank you. Okay, so that's it. CB Lee, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun getting to chat about this book. Okay, there we go. My thanks to C.B. Lee for stopping by to tell us about her life and her new book, A Clash of Steel, Treasure Island Remixed. Do check it out for the young adults in your lives or for the young adult in you. If you're interested, nobody ever puts down a highly readable adventure story just because of some category mentioned on the cover. Good stories are good stories, and A Clash of Steel is a very good story indeed. My thanks also to listener Joao and his urging of Fernando Pessoa. We will try to make that happen soon. Next up, we're going to have... Oh, we've got some good stuff coming up. We've got 
Little Women remixed. And we're going to have some Sylvia Plath, some Robert Hayden, a couple of good poets there. Let's include Gwendolyn Brooks. My goodness, that's three for three. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau is clawing his way forward. What a fascinating hypocrite he was. Completely unusual thinker, sort of an amazing guy in literature. I can't wait for that. And we're going to have a Thanksgiving gift for you, dear listeners. A fun episode for you to put on while you cook up your feast. That's a pretty good November, don't you think? I think so, anyway. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>